On the evening of June 17, 1972, five men broke into the National Democratic headquarters in Washington, D.C. A vigilant security man at the Watergate building, Frank Wills, noticed white masking tape holding down the latch on a door, and suspecting something was afoot, he alerted the police. Car 727, car 727, open door at the Watergate office building, possible burglary. The five men were arrested, and within days, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, two 20-something journalists from the Washington Post, were investigating a case that, despite their youth and comparative inexperience, would uncover a conspiracy of political malfeasance, so criminal and so corrupt that it would force President Nixon from office. You can dial the White House direct, can't you? Yeah. What's the number? 4561414. White House. Howard Hunt, please. While the investigation was still circling the Oval Office, way out west in Hollywood, actor Robert Redford was reading the articles with growing interest. So much interest, in fact, that he approached Woodward and Bernstein to buy their story. Until then, the two reporters had not even thought about writing a book. But in light of Redford's offer, they approached the publishing house Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster struck a deal, but even before the book had been written, Redford had snapped up the film rights. With contract in hand, he then went in search of a suitable director, and found one in Alan J. Pakula. As coincidence would have it, Pakula was embarking on his own film about a journalist investigating a vast political conspiracy, The Parallax View. Since the assassination, six of these people have died in some kind of an accident. Four. Look, nobody's trying to kill you, huh? These people were killed, and whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. William Goldman was hired to do the adaptation. Goldman was one of Hollywood's most highly revered screenwriters, having won an Oscar in 1969 for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which, not coincidentally, had featured Redford in the latter title role. Three years later, Goldman was writing for Redford again with The Hot Rock. And before the cameras eventually rolled on the Watergate project, Redford would star in The Great Waldo Pepper, with Goldman once again seated at the typewriter. Here is Goldman explaining his process. What we do, there, is no, there are no rules for writing. I can't do anything until I think I know what I'm doing. I'll put on my wall, I'll tape to the wall, a yellow thing maybe with 15 or 25 numbers. It'll say interview, rain, whatever it is. Once I know what I'm doing, once I have the notes up on the wall, I tend to be able to write fairly quickly. And that's the way it works for me. Everybody else is different. Even though All the President's Men won Goldman his second Academy Award, he has said that if he could live his entire life over, he would change only one thing, his experience on the movie. But whatever Goldman may feel about it, he undoubtedly had a knack not just for character and structure, but also witty dialogue. And it is ironic that for a film that for legal purposes had to be absolutely free of any libel charges, the most memorable line of dialogue Follow the money. was never actually uttered by the real Deep Throat, but came from Goldman's own typewriter. Hello? Could I please, Mr. Dahlberg? Yes. Kenneth Dahlberg? Yes. This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Yes. 
About that $25,000 check deposited in the bank account of one of the Watergate burglars, Mr. Bernard Barker? As you know, sir, the check has your name on it. We were doing a story on this, and I was wondering if you would care to comment or explain. Uh, I uh, turn all my money over to the committee. What committee is that, sir? The committee to reelect? Yes, yes. Why would you do that? While the script is one of the film's many strengths, it's also very well cast. Dustin Hoffman avoids any temptation to showboat as Carl Bernstein, leaving each scene to be stolen by the supporting cast. In particular, Jason Robards as newspaper editor Ben Bradley, and in a small role as Judy Hoback, a financial bookkeeper, Jane Alexander expresses the enormous personal compromises Nixon's administration forced upon its own staff. I was just curious why you lied just then. Have you been threatened if you tell the truth? No. Never in so many words. Besides being a terrific chronicle of a crucial chapter in American history, All the President's Men is also a terrific example of how cinema can operate. By which I mean the way a film deploys subtext. Sure, the film is about the Watergate investigations. But, underneath, it is more a meditation on power and how power manifests itself. Merit must go to production designer George Jenkins and set decorator George Gaines. The Washington Post would not allow their offices to be used for the film, so Jenkins and Gaines measured and photographed everything in the newsroom to recreate it back on the sound stages in Hollywood. Their attention to detail is legendary. Although they were never seen, they gathered pens, papers, pads, desk files, and even the contents of the trash cans. But the most crucial element in the film's design was undoubtedly cinematographer Gordon Willis. Without Willis, I believe the film would have dissolved into a talk fest. Willis was, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the greatest artists American cinema has ever seen. I can't say Hollywood because Willis despised the place and its practices, preferring instead to work almost exclusively on America's East Coast, filming Pakula's Clute and The Parallax View, Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather trilogy, and no less than eight Woody Allen pictures, including Annie Hall, Manhattan and Stardust Memories. In fact, it was Willis who secured the film's sophisticated and uniquely abstract visual code. As I said, its theme is power, and in particular, the abuse of power. If you will, law and disorder. Politically, that means what you make known to the public and what you conceal from them. Honesty and dishonesty. Speaking directly and indirectly. Visually, that means light and dark but it also means straight and oblique. The offices of the Washington Post serve as the centre of light for the story. By contrast, the rest of Washington is regularly filmed at night, presenting it as a city of political chicanery. When Woodward goes to meet his enigmatic contact Deep Throat, it is always at night. They meet in a car park. It is dark, and significantly, the car park is underground. Where are you? Stuck. The story is stalled on us. And you thought I'd help? I'll never quote you. 
I wouldn't quote you even as an anonymous source. I mean, you'd be on deep background. You can trust me, you know that. Now, the motif of light and dark is common to many thrillers. But this is where the film's visual code becomes unique. Cinematography is not just about light. It is also about composition and lenses. And it is significant that when we are in the newspaper offices, the scenes are set in deep focus and the camera is predominantly placed head-on to its subject. We see journalists at their desks, typing away or on the phones, and all the while the frame has a strong and clear deep focus perspective. However, when Woodward goes to the car park, there is little light, so the focus is shallow. But the camera is also positioned so the conversations are filmed not head-on, like in the offices. Rather, the view is diagonal. In other words, at an angle. Oblique. Indirect. Willis's compositions are strongly geometrical, and nowhere is this more evident than in the scene when Woodward and Bernstein go to the Library of Congress. They have gone there to trace the list of books taken on loan by a character connected to the Watergate burglaries. The shot begins with a close overhead view of the pack of cards being placed on the table. As they check the cards, the camera's view slowly widens, pulling up and further away. Gradually, we see the enormity of their task. As we pull back yet further, we see the layout of the library. It is circular. It resembles a wheel. The wheels of power? But it also looks like a web. Ah yes, there's the conspiracy right there for everyone to see. But they don't. They don't because true power never reveals itself. It doesn't have to, because it is always there. Here is Willis revealing the secrets of his art. Every shot, in principle you were delivering information. You had to be delivering information. And said to Alan, I said, you know, this feels like an in-depth movie to me, because this newsroom and everything that you have to see. You see a lot of things going on at the same time. But it was just, it was a juxtaposition of imagery became very important. The size of the imagery, you know, the structure and the shot structure on it, and still be able to, you know, deliver the information. All too often we are told that film is a visual medium. To say that would be to neglect half of its potential. The other half, of course, being sound. In fact, without sound, you might not only fail to see what you're supposed to, you might not imagine you're seeing what you're not. In other words, sound can act as a means of showing you something you're not seeing. The sound in All the President's Men was so integral to the film's overall scheme that it demanded the expertise of not just one, but four designers. Arthur Piantadozzi, James E. Webb, Les Freshals and Dick Alexander. And for their trouble, they were each awarded an Oscar. When we think of sound design in cinema, we all too often think of sci-fi or action-adventure, where the genre dictates layer upon layer of sound to accompany the visual extravaganza on screen. But, while what you get in All the President's Men may suggest little more than voices talking, we must note that a good proportion of those voices are talking down the phone. And while you want a clear recording of the voice, a subtle manipulation in the quality of that voice or interference on the phone line is absolutely crucial. Uh, yes. Sir, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post and I'm sorry to disturb you at this hour. Tomorrow we're running a story and uh, in the paper and we just think that you should have a chance to comment on it. Come on. 
sight. John M. Mitchell, while serving as United States Attorney General, personally controlled a secret cash fund that was used to gather information about the Democrats, according Jesus. to sources involved in the Watergate investigation. Jesus. Beginning in the spring of 1971, almost a year before he left the Justice Department to become President Nixon's campaign manager, on March 1, Mitchell personally approved withdrawals from the fund. All that crap! You putting it in the paper? Well... Look, it's all been denied! It may be called All the President's Men, but let us now acknowledge a woman without whom the story would never have been told. Her name was Catherine Graham. Graham's family had owned the Washington Post since the 1930s, and her husband Philip had run the newspaper until 1963. But he had long suffered from manic depression, and on August the 3rd of that year, with a 28-gauge shotgun, he committed suicide. It was under such tragic circumstances that Catherine Graham came to be the de facto publisher of the newspaper. But remember, this was the 1960s, when journalism was still a male-dominated world. In 1973, she then took over as chairman. By then, the Watergate story was up and running, and the White House was responding by boycotting staff from the Washington Post. But Graham supported her journalists to the hilt, giving them her complete and unequivocal backing. Nixon responded by secretly attempting to buy out the paper. But Graham also owned two TV stations in Florida, and when Nixon learned that, he wanted her broadcast licenses revoked. Still, Graham stood firm, this despite the fact that a year earlier, she had been the subject of the worst and most infamous threat in American journalistic history. It occurred when John Mitchell, President Nixon's former Attorney General, warned the newspaper about an article the Post was about to run. Mitchell told Carl Bernstein, You tell your publisher, tell Katie Graves she's going to get a tit caught in the big ring if that's published. But Catherine Graham never blinked, and the Nixon administration began to crumble. She remained on as chairman of the paper until 1991, and in 1998, she received the Pulitzer Prize for her memoir, Personal History. The great lady died 15 years ago this July, at the age of 84. <laughs> 